All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 2 Corinthians. In this recording, we're looking at the second part of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 through 6-2. And so, in the last recording, we looked at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 17. This one will focus specifically 18 and following. So let's make sure we recall where we're at in the flow of thought. Chapter 4, Paul is explaining his ministry to the Corinthians and specifically how even those ministries marked by suffering, hardship, difficulty, and weakness, he doesn't lose heart because he's focused on eternal things, specifically his own resurrection. At the beginning of chapter 5, he then detailed what, that resur- what his hope regarding the body looked like. Uh, how that even though if the body was going to be torn down, he knew he could get a new supernatural eternal body someday. And that even if he died before that happened, before the Lord returns, he still gets to go be with Jesus. And so he's of good courage as he carries out his ministry. Then in this paragraph, beginning in verse 11, Paul begins to take all of that and apply that to his ministry and explain that to the Corinthians. And what he's trying to help them realize is that his whole ministry that looks like this is driven specifically by the fact that he knows he's going to be evaluated by God. He knows what he calls the fear of the Lord, that he's going to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus, and that he's been captivated and controlled by Jesus' self-sacrificial love for him. And that's completely changed everything about his approach to ministry. Uh, it changed is the way he views other people. That the way he views them is no longer by the values and standards of the world. And not only that, um, he he recognizes now that anybody who comes into Christ is a brand new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. All of this, Paul has said, is the work of Jesus through the gospel who died for all so that those who would live, meaning those who would enter into him and live in him, would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. And so the gospel has this transformative aim. Jesus' death and resurrection has this this goal to transform the way we live, no longer selfishly and self-serving and self-promoting and self-interest, but living for Jesus and his resurrection. And so Paul is explaining all of this because that's not just what he preaches, it's also why he does what he does the way he does in ministry. And so where we're going to pick up is in chapter 5, verse 18, and beginning here, Paul circles all the way back around to where he started this section in verse 11, talking about his ministry and how his ministry is driven by the love of Christ how his ministry looks the way it does because he knows the fear of the Lord and he wants to please the Lord in every respect. And so being driven by the love of Christ and wanting to please the Lord, how does all of this that he's talked about uh, apply to or fit in with his ministry? This is what Paul says in verse 18. He says, now, all these things are from God. When he says these things, he's referring to the stuff he's just talking about, how Jesus laying down his life is aimed at getting people to no longer live for themselves, but for others. It's uh, transformed how Paul views not only Jesus, but other people, no longer according to the flesh, but in a different way. It's, uh, It's made it possible for human beings to become a new creation in Christ where the old things are gone, new things have come. All these things are from God. 
God is the source of this and the one who willed this and made it all happen. And then Paul says this, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, it's important to recognize that when Paul says, who reconciled us, certainly he reconciled you and me to himself as well. But in the immediate context of 2 Corinthians chapters 3, 4, and 5, and on into chapter 6, we'll see very clearly at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul's really focused on himself and his team. The first-person plural pronouns like us and we that show up in these early chapters of 2 Corinthians first and foremost, refer to Paul and his ministry team. That's what he's been describing. That's what he is describing here in the immediate context. So certainly, it applies to all of us being reconciled to, to, God, to God in Christ as well. But here in context, the most immediate reference for it is Paul and his team. So, who reconciled us, that is, who reconciled Paul and his ministry team to himself through Christ, and gave us, that is Paul and his ministry team, the ministry of reconciliation. This is Paul taking all the stuff that he's talked about and applying it to his ministry. And what Paul is saying is, is that God is the one who did this. God reconciled Paul and his team and then gave them the ministry of reconciliation. And it reminds us of, I think, an important biblical principle for all of us. Beyond Paul and his team, it's true of Paul and his team, but by imitation, it's also true of us that being reconciled to God leads to helping others be reconciled as well. And reconciliation refers to uh, repairing a broken relationship. And in the case of the gospel, what relationship needs to be repaired? Well, the relationship between God and human beings. That's the one that's broken. And that's the one that needs to be repaired. And so Paul is saying that he and his team themselves have been restored, relationally restored to God. And out of that now, they've been given this ministry to help others also be uh, reconciled or have their relationship with God be restored as well. And as we'll keep reading this paragraph, one of the things that becomes clear, particularly as you enter into the first couple verses of chapter 6, is that Paul thinks there are people there in the Corinthian church who need this kind of reconciliation. There are people in the church who, because they've opposed Paul and they've opposed his ministry, Paul sees them as, as being at odds, not just with Paul, but with God. Since he is God's ambassador, since God is the one who's given him this ministry to tear down Paul and be uh, at odds with Paul, Paul views as really at odds with God and his approach to life and to ministry. And so we'll see that becomes very clear at the beginning of chapter 6 when Paul will tell them to, um, you know, now is the day of salvation. I, I appeal to you to receive the grace of God, he says directly to the Corinthians. And so this describes Paul's ministry in general. It also, in this context, describes a very specific situation where he sees people in the church there in Corinth who have some reconciling work that needs to be done. And then in verse 19, Paul goes on to specify really exactly what he has in mind by the phrase ministry of reconciliation. Like, what does that phrase refer to? And Paul explains that in verse 19, and in doing so, he gives actually a very concise summary 
of what God did in Jesus. So listen to what he says here in verse 19. He says, namely, so here is the ministry of reconciliation. Here is what that phrase refers to. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And remember that the word Christ isn't equivalent to Jesus. Jesus is his name. Christ is a title. It means king. And so the point is here that Jesus was anointed by God as Messiah, as king, and God was in him, in King Jesus, working for the sake of reconciling the world, like trying to restore the world to himself. And the world refers to the people of the world, to restore them to himself. Because fundamentally, that's what's wrong with the world, is the relationship with God is broken. And so God's aim in King Jesus is to restore the people of the world back to proper working order by restoring them to himself. How did he do that? Well, he did that by not counting their wrongdoings against them, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them. And then Paul says, and he has committed to us the word or the message of reconciliation. And here's one of the things I want to make sure you notice here in verse 19 is that, that God's ultimate aim was reconciling, like reuniting people to God. And oftentimes we limit what God did in Jesus purely as dealing with sin, to deal with our guilt and to deal with our sin, right? So we can get our ticket to heaven. But that's not quite right. The goal is for God to reconcile people to himself. He does deal with our wrongdoings, not counting them against them, right? Like not... Uh, you know, crediting them to our account. He's not going to hold us accountable for that. He's going to let us off the hook for our wrongdoing. But that's a means to a greater end. And that greater end is reconciling with God, becoming friends with God, reunited with God. And that's the message that Paul and his team proclaim. They've been committed the message or the word of reconciliation. So when they go and preach, what they are preaching is this message about being reconciled to God and having their relationship with him restored. So that's how Paul and his team approach their ministry. In fact, it's the whole way he views his ministry. Look at verse 20. He says, therefore, conclusion from this, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors of the king as though God were making his appeal through this. And so Paul, again, we is Paul and his team first and foremost. Again, it can apply to us by extension, but Paul is describing his ministry for the sake of the Corinthians in the original context. So we are ambassadors, official representatives for the king, for Christ the king. And it's like when they speak, God present in and through Jesus, is now speaking through Paul as his official representatives, just like the way an ambassador works. An ambassador speaks on behalf of another person, and he speaks with their authority. And so when Paul and, and his ministry team preach and speak and call people to be reconciled, it's like God himself is actually appealing to other people through them. And what's the essence of that appeal? Well, here it is. Here's the plea to the Corinthians and to anyone else who will listen. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, as I noted, it becomes clear in the following context, especially chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that Paul actually includes at least some of the Corinthians in this appeal. They need to be reconciled to God. And so while this is a general summary of Paul's message of reconciliation, right, be reconciled to God, it also here includes appealing 
to those obstinate Corinthians who are still opposing Paul and his ministry and his message, it still includes an appeal to them to be reconciled to God as well. Since Paul and his team are Christ's ambassadors, right? They speak on behalf of God. To oppose Paul is to oppose Christ and to oppose God. And that's why there's still this sense in which they need to be reconciled to God. And so as Paul travels around the empire, here's a summary of his message. Be reconciled to God. But also as he speaks to the Corinthians in this immediate context, here's his message to some of them in the church. Be reconciled to God. And it's totally appropriate because of who Paul is and because of how they've responded to him. All right, now, in verse 21, we actually come to one of, uh, another one of those really well-known verses in 2 Corinthians. And yet that familiarity, I think, poses a bit of a problem because it causes us to know this verse apart from its immediate context and thus miss maybe some of the force and the nuances of what Paul is actually saying. So let me read 521, and then we're going to reflect on what it's saying in its original context before we wrestle with what it means to us today. And so verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that sounds like such a concise summary of the gospel, right? Such a concise summary of the exchange that happened through Christ's sacrifice that many, maybe most, have actually simply read it that way. And that's obviously a possible and legitimate reading of it in one sense. But remember, in context, we're primarily talking about Paul and his ministry. So let me just read it again and point out a few little things that will help us just hear it well. And then let's set it in its context. Paul says this, He, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin. So to know sin in this context is to be uh, intimately acquainted with it, to practice it. Like you, you know sin in an intimate sort of way. So this is saying God made Jesus, even though Jesus never knew sin, he never actually had sin, he made him to be sin on our behalf, our in broad sense is humanities, but in the most specific sense in the immediate context, our refers to Paul and his team. Remember, he just said, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are there in verse 20. And so our most precisely here refers to Paul and his team. So God made Jesus who never knew sin to be sin on behalf of Paul and his ministry team so that we, that is Paul and his team who are ambassadors for Jesus, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that is in Christ. And so because of the context, we can't at least first and foremost take this as just a concise summary of the exchange that happened in and through Christ and the gospel. Um, Paul actually already made that point in verse 19 in a general sense up above when he, when he talked about that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrong uh, doings against them, right? He already made that general point. He probably doesn't need to make it again. Uh, and yet, even more important is that Paul's already resumed talking about his ministry and how he understands his ministry. So we have to read verse 21, at least initially and first and foremost in its original context, to be talking about Paul and his ministry team in their role as ambassadors of King Jesus. And so the we and the us here in verse 21 
most precisely in context, refers to Paul and his team, as I pointed out when I read back through it. So how then should we understand the whole thing in context? Here's what I think. Since it's first and foremost talking about Paul's ministry, then let's just think this through. So when he says, God made Jesus to be sin, even though he never knew sin, um, what he's getting at, it seems, is to, to fulfill that role as sin offering or maybe even coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. I think we're getting at what Paul is saying at the beginning of Romans chapter 8 when he says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. I think this is shorthand for that. So Jesus came to be sin in that, in that sense with the result that that's the idea of the so that, so that with the result that Paul and his ministry team should become the righteousness of God. What does that mean? Well, that means that Paul and his team should embody the saving justice of God. We have to make sure we understand that phrase, righteousness of God, in its biblical context. And the reason for that is because the very familiar and common Protestant reading of that phrase, righteousness of God, actually ignores its original biblical context, sadly. Um, the common Protestant idea is that like in Christ, right, we wear this robe of righteousness, like Jesus' righteousness has been applied to our account. But that's just not what Paul means by the righteousness of God, because Paul knew his Bible. He knew his scriptures. In fact, when you read through the Psalms, you'll actually see this kind of phrase, righteousness of God, God's righteousness, his righteousness. You'll see that all over the place, often in parallel with his justice. And those were, that parallel phrase helps us understand what we're getting at. When the psalmist used the phrase, or the Old Testament used the phrase, or Paul, steeped in that language, here uses the phrase righteousness of God, what he means by that is God's saving justice. That's what the phrase meant in the Psalms, that when God is going to act to vindicate and deliver and save his people, that's what the phrase means. And so what Paul is getting at is that... Um, because of what Jesus did, and because of who he is, and because he's aiming at reconciling the world, that Paul and his team now embody that very action. They embody God's saving justice. Frankly, if this meant um, what we often take it to mean as just referring to the kind of the great exchange that happened on our behalf on the cross— to say that we might become the righteousness of God, that's actually kind of an odd phrase. Um, we don't actually, and Protestants typically don't believe we become the righteousness of God. We just believe that God credits us as righteousness. That's the way it's often explained in Protestant theology. Um, and so to say that we might become the righteousness of God would actually be a bit awkward. But when we understand it in its original context, and we understand what this phrase means to refer to God's actions to save and to deliver his people, and we understand that Paul is talking about his ministry, I think then all of a sudden things make perfect sense. Paul is saying that as God's ambassador, through the work of Jesus in the gospel, he has become the very embodiment of God's saving justice. He and his ministry team actually embody and carry with them the, God's, the message of God's saving justice. And that's why it's like God is making his very appeal through them. 
That's why his ministry is shaped like Jesus' death and resurrection, as he explained in chapter 4. This is what it means for Paul and his team to no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again. What Paul is saying in all of that and here is that their ministry looks the way it does because this is God's way of bringing his saving justice into the world. And they've become that. They've become the very embodiment of the gospel they preach. And so as partners with Jesus, they work together with him appealing to people to welcome the grace of God and to respond to God's saving justice and to be reconciled, therefore, to God. And that's why many scholars actually connect verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6 with what Paul has just said. And it does connect theologically and logically in the flow of thought, but it also starts a new paragraph. And so chapter 6, 1 and 2 is sort of like a transitional set of sentences that wraps up what Paul is saying here in chapter 5 and launches what he's going to say in chapter 6. And so I want to read it here and then we'll deal with it in detail in the next recording. But notice what he says. Immediately after saying this about um, becoming the righteousness of God in Christ, Paul says then, and working together with him. Again, he's talking about his ministry. And as we work together with him, Paul says, we Paul and his team, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. In fact, that word urge there in verse 1 is the same word that's translated appeal in verse 20. It ties this verse and this whole section together. Here's his appeal. His appeal is to be reconciled to God. His appeal, specifically now to the Corinthians, is don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, verse 2, for he says, at a favorable time, I listened to you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is a day of salvation. Again, notice Paul's talking about his ministry and now he's directly speaking to the Corinthians. And, and so the context just really requires us to understand chapter 5, verse 21, not just generically, as a description of what happened in the gospel, but specifically about Paul and his ministry and his team and why it looks the way it does and what his appeal is, that he embodies the very gospel he preaches. And so here in chapter 6, 1 and 2, that's what he's getting at. And so we'll look at the details of these verses in the next recording, Um, but this direct appeal here to be reconciled to God is now directed specifically to the Corinthians is probably especially those in the church who are opposed to Paul and still stirring up trouble. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. Be reconciled to God by being reconciled to his ambassador, Paul, and his ministry team. All right, before we leave this whole section, I know it took us two recordings to get through it. There's a lot here, and I hope that I've clarified just a few things and and helped us understand it. Let me just offer a couple reflections before we leave it. The first is this, the need for reconciliation. That God's goal in the gospel is not just to forgive our sins, but to reconcile us to himself. That the fundamental human problem is not specific sinful acts. Those are symptoms of a greater disease. And the greater disease is a broken relationship with God. And Our reconciliation to God will restore us to proper human functioning so we don't live that way anymore. And so we actually live for Christ 
in this world the way we were meant to live. And so there's this massive need for us to be reconnected to God so that his life and his wisdom flows into us and flows through us into the world. So that's the first reflection here, that the heart of Paul's ministry was reconciliation. It's the heart of our greatest need. It's the heart of the world's greatest need. And so that needs to be at the heart of our message to this world, the message of reconciliation. And my second reflection really is, what would it look like to imitate Paul here? That Paul regularly calls people to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So what would it look like to imitate his approach to life and ministry? That is, what would it look like to be so caught up with Jesus and his death and resurrection that our life and our service to Jesus embodies the very uh, death and resurrection approach to life, right? Like, that's what Paul's getting at when he says that we've become the righteousness of God. In other words, we embody it. We literally have become that. We've taken in the gospel of God's saving justice so fully and so completely that we embody that very self-giving way that God brought salvation to the world. What would it look like to live that way? To be so controlled and compelled and captivated by Jesus' great love for us and for the whole world that we become carriers of that self-sacrificial gospel love and that wise, saving justice. That's what Paul means when he says he's controlled by the love of Christ. That's what he means when he says he's Christ's ambassadors. That's what he means when he says he and his team have become the, the saving justice, the righteousness of God. What would it look like for you and for me to do the same in our sphere of influence and in our context? Hey, it's John. Thanks for tuning in to this session of the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. I appreciate so deeply all of you who make this ministry possible by your generous support. It literally could not be done without you. So thanks a ton for your prayers as well as your financial support. And if you've been impacted by this ministry in any way, just know that it's made possible by the generous support of others. And I'd love for you to prayerfully consider joining the team so this ministry can continue to grow and impact others all around the world. Thanks a ton in advance for your support.